Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers, and I see callers and chatters, hi chatters, to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Now, if you have logged in as a guest, and I do see a couple of guests, uh, uh, please, if you want to participate in the chat, just sign in through your Blog Talk Radio or Facebook account. Now, this is one of those special Monday shows, and I try to have a Monday show right before holiday. And so this is one of our special shows today, and I'm so glad to have as our guests April Hines and Reverend Fred Morton. Now, they will share information that is important to anyone interested in American history and especially the African-American experience because the wanderer is the last documented ship to bring a cargo of slaves from Africa to the United States on November 28, 1858. Now, I hope you're hearing that date, 1858. Now, April Hines, i just give you a little background. Now, her grandfather discovered an African face jug on a construction site in Philadelphia in 1950, and I'm going to let her tell you more about that, but she's a devoted genealogist, and she traced the jug's origins back to Edgefield County, South Carolina, and our next guest is historian Reverend Fred Morton. Now, let me tell you what's significant about Reverend Morton. He is a descendant of Yango Lanham, a survivor of the wanderer ship. And I'm hoping that other descendants will call in to share what they have learned about their ancestors. So let me give a warm welcome to April Hines and Fred Morton. Welcome, April and Fred. Thank you, Thank you for having Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for coming. This is such a, a significant story for all of us to listen to today. So, April, let's start with you. Why don't you tell us what's significant about the, the Wanderer? 
Well, as you pointed out, Bernice, um, it was one of the last slave ships to come into America. Um, the actual last documented slave ship was not the Wanderer, but the Clotide, which uh, went into Mobile, Alabama. Um, but the ship before that was the Wanderer. Now, the significance of, of this uh, slave ship is in the fact that the transatlantic slave trade was abolished um, in 1811 or 1810, and um, it made it illegal to import uh, Africans into the slave system here in America. And a prominent uh, uh, businessman in Savannah, Georgia, by the name of Charles Lamar, um, took it upon himself to buck the federal ban on the importation of slaves, and he conspired with many people uh, to take a, a ship out of New York Harbor and outfit it, um, which was a cruise ship, uh, a luxury cruise ship, and he had it outfitted as a slaver um, under the noses of people that probably turned a blind eye to what he was doing. And he was able to go to Africa, to the Congo, and he took 400, more than 400 uh, Congolese Africans from their shores and brought them here illegally in 1858. And that is, I mean, obviously, I mean, he had the intent of doing exactly what he did, do something very illegal by sending a luxury cruise ship that he outfitted for the sole purpose of transporting human cargo for sale yeah. in the United States. Yeah. So yeah. It, 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 it is – go ahead. Oh, so so in November of 1858 when they landed uh, on the shores of Jekyll Island, Georgia, um, many of them were scattered abroad. Um, you know, they kind of disappeared behind this – brick wall of slavery where they were put on barges and cargo uh, or, and trains and, and uh, wagons to take them to different parts of the United States where they had already secured people that were going to purchase them. And the federal uh, uh, government was already on hot on their trail and certainly Lamar was well connected and working with many people to um, get rid of, you know, evidence, so to speak. And um, people kind of just disappeared. But what was unique about the Wanderer, there were actually documented people and stories, only a few, that were connected to them. Up until mm -hmm. recently, you know, the faces of these more than, you know, 409 people that were taken here were in Edgefield County, South Carolina, which is a very small, um, you know, rural town in South Carolina. And in 1908, anthropologist um, Charles Montgomery had come and interviewed seven of these wanderer survivors once they were aging. Um, Romeo Thomas is one of the most well-known, Wardley, um, Lucy Lanham and others were briefly interviewed. Not a lot was asked of them, you know, very basic questions of, you know, where do you believe you were from, you know, um, what was your African name, where, you know, Wardley told them it was Sulukanji. And little was known about them until recently when, you know, this face judge that I found led me to Fred and led me to other families, some of who knew their 
African history, such as Wardley's family, which is very carefully preserved and handed down their oral history. And others, you know, like Alicia James and, and um, others that had no idea that their ancestor uh, was brought here from Africa on the Wanderer. So it's been a, a pretty remarkable journey and a project to uh, be able to reconnect these people to their histories. And, and even more so, the, the stories of these Africans generated so much interest. Certainly, you know, the slave trade was abolished. This was, you know, on the eve of the Civil War. And much was written about them in the local papers and all the different areas that they were dispersed. And they certainly generated curiosity and excitement. And much was written about them. So when I went into the archives, I began to look at old newspaper documents. And this was front page news. You know, all the way up until, you know, their deaths, such as, such as Romeo and Edgefield in 1926, much was written about him um, and where he had come from. He was a king back in Africa. And so wow. you know, it really tells us, and it paints a portrait. I mean, I even have personal letters of some of the survivors that talk about how they were captured and how they sought after freedom. So mm. it's, it's been pretty remarkable. I bet you it has. And how long have you been working on this research, April? Uh, I guess it's about three years now. Mm-hmm. So, um, so tell us, you know, you you found these old letters, and you went to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., or did you also find information in the Edgeville Archives? You know, I used so much information, um, certainly oral history, such as people like Fred, hold so much valuable information. Um, going to newspaper archives, whether it be online or in, um, you know, uh, a libraries is a, is a helpful resource. Others is, um, it's almost like serendipity. When I received the letters of uh, uh, Isaac Bland, one of the survivors of the Wanderer, it just happened to be I sat next to someone at a conference about face jugs that held these letters. And so, you know, it's just been a, a, almost by chance. It's, it's as the ancestors want their stories to be told, and for whatever reason, they found me to tell it. Well, that, that's wonderful, and it's so great that we have uh, descendants on the phone who can share a little bit more with us. But before we start talking to Fred and to, to get your story, Fred, I want to know, just share with us, I mean, what is a face mug? Excuse well, me, a face jug. <laughs> <laughs> well, it goes by different names. Some people call them face vessels. Some people call them face jugs. Uh, face jugs are stoneware jugs that are um, made in Edgefield County. South Carolina, and they kind of appeared, um, you know, uh, shortly after the slaves from the Wanderer arrived. Now, we don't really have a Genesis jug where we know exactly where the first one was made or by whom, but they began to appear, um, you know, shortly after um, the Wanderer arrived. And mm -hmm. the enslaved Africans that were put um, into labor, into the pottery industry in Edgefield, South Carolina, were toiling day and night making these stoneware jugs uh, for people like Abner Landrum and, and, and other um, slave owners of potteries in the South. And what they did was they applied in their own free time kaolin eyes, um, 
uh, made of clay that were white and glaring and, you know, bearing teeth across the front. And it has a grimacing face that almost speaks to you. And they began to uh, appear the very first um, uh, explanation of them, a recorded uh, interview about them, was by pottery operator Colonel Thomas J. Davies. And in 1906, he told uh, Edwin Atlee Barber, a uh, ceramics historian, that his slaves were making these in their free time. And he had even connected them back to Africa and their Congo mm-hmm. connections. But not much was said about them after that. And they kind of, um, you know, seems to have stopped production shortly after Reconstruction. And then shortly after that, they began to appear in museum collections and private collections, such as the Philadelphia Museum of Art was given three of them. And not much was known about them. They were kind of considered utilitarian vessels that, you know, slaves had made these for no purpose more than making uh, a a water jug. And what we've learned recently is that there's so much more than that, that they have very clear Congolese connections, that these objects are ritual in nature and that they, um, you know, are infused with power and that slaves had made these to very much in the way that the Africans, uh, we believe they're connected to the Nikisi vessel, which Mm -hmm. is a uh, vessel in the Congo where, again, it has tail and eyes. Um, which is very sacred in the Congo, and it's found right there in Edgefield County. They would have instantly recognized it. And there, um, it, it has a, a glaring mouth, and it's a, uh, its body has a cavity in which the village Naganga, the spiritual leader, would infuse it with power, um, calling on the ancestors to, um, you know, right before the, uh, invoke power before war or before planting. And, just as you see in the face jug, the jug itself is a vessel. And so mm-hmm. someone would be putting those same types of things in the head of the face jug and would use it by the door to protect them or to, um, uh, you know, cure an ailment maybe given by an adversary. So we're learning a lot more about what face jugs are. And, and where are you learning this from? Well, we've, we've, you know, taken the steps that were originally taken by historians and researchers such as John Blotch and Thompson, who really were the first to connect these to the Congo, and take it a step further and say, we believe these were objects that held power, that they were not utilitarian. And they never really, even though they made that connection to the Wanderer, and 200 Africans from the Wanderer were brought to Edgefield County. And mm-hmm. so they certainly would have had a very large influence on African survivals, if not reigniting ones that were already there. And, um, you know, they had connected it to the Wanderer, but never kind of taken it further. So what we've been doing, we've been working with so many um, um, archaeologists, such as Dr. Mark Newell, um, other historians, uh, um, and places like Ancestry.com and Chipstone, to actually take um, interviews, which, which Fred participated in, and going down to Edgefield and asking the African-American community themselves what they believe they were and what their oral histories are. And it really supports that these were used by the doors 
to ward off evil, that they were used as grave decorations, which, you know, reflects their Congolese um, practices. And um, Edgefield is very unique in the sense where so many of their African survivals are still practiced today. And mm-hmm. on our website, you know, there's some interviews there, which really just shows how strong um, these cultural preservations were. Mm-hmm. Now, have uh, have you or any others participated in any, any digs in Edgefield where you have found other uh, remnants of the pottery? Actually, Dr. Mark Newell has. He um, is the archaeologist who was working down in South Carolina and still is, and had the first and only discovery of base jug fragments in an archaeological perspective. So mm-hmm. there he found many noses and faces and fragments. So these face jugs were being made in, in, a, in a large production. And I think the outside community began to um, embrace them. And, mm-hmm. you know, talking to the community even today, they remember them being in their, the houses of their congregation. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we've seen them migrate north, such as my jug. And it shows you that, you know, these were objects that were very important, that they were carrying them with them as even, you know, one person up in uh, Boston contacted me, a son of a slave had given a face jug to his um, plantation uh, uh, owner up in the north. He had come destitute from the south, and she had helped him on a, a poor farm. And he had nothing to give her to thank her after he had made enough to sustain himself and move on. But he, he left her a face jug. So it shows you that this, this is something that was very important to the men. Yes, yes. Now, it it looks like I'm, I have a phone call that's coming in, and I'm just going to check it just for a few minutes because someone may be calling in with a question. And if you are sure. calling in with a question, I am going to call out your area code so if you hear your area code, you'll know that you are live. So area code 718, do you have a question or a comment? Yes, I do. Go ahead on. Hi, my name is William Gardenhire. I'm here in New York City, and I'm calling because my buddy April is on your show. I met her a couple of, <laughs> I met her a couple of years ago. It's a funny story. She was doing an investigation on her face jug and ran into my family, the Gardenhire family. And uh, the funny part about it is, was, was because uh, my father died when I was young, and he, his death kind of cut me off from my family. And because of her investigation, she found me on Facebook. And um, one night in the middle of the night, I get an email talking about, is this email active? Can she contact me? She had a family tree she wanted to send to me. I'm like, who is this girl and why would she have my family tree? I said, sure, send it to me. She had my whole family, my grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins. I was like, who are you? Are you a family member? She was like, no, I'm not a family member, but because of this space drug, I ran into your family. I probably know more about your family than you do. I was so amazed, so in awe. Um, She told me she was going to have like a little mini family reunion for my family. I came and I was able to be introduced to my family. It was amazing. This young lady, April, she she's a godsend. 
and that that face jug. I told her that thing is so ugly. I would have threw it away. God gave it to the right person. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is so it's wonderful. I mean, so you are a descendant, and it's because April conducted some research that she was able to communicate with you and share with you the research that she had done on your on your family. Exactly. So put the pieces exactly. together. Exactly. What? Not only did she do research on my past, but she was able to put me back with my family that I had lost when my father died. Well, April, you're going to have to share a little bit more with us about that. But thank you so much for calling in. And oh, we're going to... Go ahead, and we're going to, yes, and we're going to talk to uh, Fred so that he could share with us uh, information about his family. But we're going to take a quick break and come back, and Fred, you're going to be on when we come back. Thank you so much okay. for calling in. God bless you. God bless Thank you. Thank you. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you have been listening to April Hines, and we will now hear from Fred Morton. Now, April has shared with us a discovery of a face jug and the history of the face jug, and also given us some background information on the Wanderer. This was a slave ship that was actually landed in Georgia in 1858. So we now have, we had a descendant to call in, and April uh, has worked with him to find his family. And so we also have Fred, and Fred is a descendant of Yango. And so, Fred, tell us more about your your ancestor and what you learned about your great-great-grandfather as you grew up. Well, growing up, I grew up in Aiken County, which was at one point a uh, part of Edgefield County. And we have always known that our family, uh, our ancestor, came from Africa. My grandmother's sister, she would have been the granddaughter of Yango. She lived near us. She was my babysitter. She was born around 1892. And uh-huh. Yango, well, his American name, they gave him the name Thomas Lanham. He died in 1920. 
So she knew him for about 28 years. So she wow. really knew, knew him. She was able to tell my, my dad, and my dad was able to pass the story on to his children, and we lived just right next door to each other. She was able to tell uh, the story of how he was deceived and captured uh, in Africa by the white slave traders, that they enticed him. They used cloth as money to trade then, and they waved this red piece of cloth, and people would go over to see, you know, what do you want us to do? What work do you want us to perform? And when they got close enough, they captured them instead of hiring them for work. And that was the story that was told to us growing up. So we've always known his story. And when he got here, they put him on this plantation, and in 1860s, his master died. So in the inventory, he's listed as unsound. But when in actuality, he just couldn't speak the language or spoke mm-hmm. very broken English because he was only here for uh, a year and a couple few months at that point. So to freedom, he married and had kids, one of which was my great-grandfather, Augustus Lanham. Uh-huh. And then as he you know, lived his life and children and grandchildren and that, he finally passed in 1920. And it was interesting. I was at the South Carolina archives. Uh-huh. I see this death certificate, January of 1920 is when he passed. And at the bottom... It had just a note that was from the um, funeral home, the funeral director, and they had written perhaps last survivor of the cargo of the slave ship Wanderer on the bottom. Wow. And then I go outside and I look at the little pass that they give me, parking pass on my dash, not even thinking about it. I find his on the exact date, January 20th. Mm. And I was just really I was just really blown away. So the mm-hmm. connection was circle was sort of complete there uh just to have that document. Um I'd also like to say uh hello to Mr. Gardenhire. I know the family well, went to school with them and definitely feels like family. So mm-hmm. uh, Now so you knew Mr. Gardenhart, but did you uh, were you aware of any other uh, descendants in the Edgeville Aikens area uh, of the Wanderer ship? About twenty years ago, I met the there's another Lucy Lanham's family. They own businesses in our area, mm-hmm. so I did go down and meet them, and they had a a photo and of Lucy Lamb. We don't have a photo of uh, Yango, but mm-hmm. I, w- I was able to meet some of them. The garden hires, I did not know their con- I knew them and had gone to school with them, but I did not know their connection until recently. Mm-hmm. So April was, a- April was able to connect the garden hires, and then I said, oh, yeah, now I know. 
Wow. So how are you making the connections, April? You know, you said April was able to connect you. How are you doing this, April? <laughs> well, it's, it's it's almost a story in itself. Um, you know, the garden hires are not, to our knowledge, directly uh, connected to the slave ship, the Wanderer, but they are connected to my face jug. So in you know, 1950, my grandfather was working at a construction stri- uh, site in Germantown, Pennsylvania, when his shovel came across this peculiar jug. And not knowing what it was or its value or its provenance, he dusted it off and put it on our uh, rusty old radiator, <laughs> and it sat there for almost 60 years. And it's traveled with my family, you know, un- unhappily with my mother. And, you know, she's tried to throw it out, as Willie said, since it's rather ugly several times. And thankfully, my grandfather insisted that we keep it. And none of us had any idea what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, it was relinquished by my grandma up into the uh, shoebox into the attic. And it wasn't until my mother and my aunt went into assisted living that I inherited some of their things, and the face drug being one of them. And when my aunt came out, and and I remember my grandfather telling me this story about this peculiar jug that he had found, but by that time when I was living with him, it was, you know, relinquished to the attic, so I wasn't able to see it. So, you know, it was in uh, 2009, I believe, that, I saw this face jug for the first time and instantly, I think anyone that sees a face jug is in, instantly intrigued and um, I wanted to know what it was. And it mm-hmm. wasn't long after a few Google searches that I discovered that it was a face jug and was quite shocked. And, you know, once we realized what it was and that it was made by an enslaved person from this little tiny pottery town in Edgefield, South Carolina, certainly all of us were scratching our heads going, how did it get to Germantown? So I went down, yeah, so I went, you know, there it was staring at me every day in my china closet, and as I walked past it, I started to really think about its origins and who made it and what these people who were enslaved in these potteries, what, what were they doing, what were they thinking, what was its purpose, and how did it land here? So it almost spoke to me and said, find us. Tell our stories. Find us. Tell our stories. So I made a silly promise to this stoneware vessel, and I said, I'm going to do everything I can to find your stories, and if I do, I promise to tell them. So a friend and I went down to the Philadelphia archives and began to scour through, you know, every single, you know, document in relation to where my grandfather was working that day, which was Leeds Middle School, which is still in Germantown. So I had an exact location of where my grandfather was. So I went peeling through property records, and after many, many years of looking, in the 1930 census, it revealed that a uh, a Leroy Stockton Wingate owned the property where my grandfather was digging and had two African-American servants that lived Mm. with him that harked back to their birthplace, South Carolina. And so this man was named Lewis gardener, garden hire, and I looked at it and I thought, well, let's go back to his uh, World War uh, draft record, see what that shows us. And so there it, it revealed that his place of origin was Edgefield County, South Carolina, where we know these jugs were made. And so instantly I knew, oh my goodness, this jug belonged to Lewis Garden Hire, and I began to, you know, reconstruct the family tree as best as I could with the help of some other genealogists. And put together what we thought was the best tree and 
I decided, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and I opened up the Philadelphia phone book and looked up garden hire and was connected to Lewis Garden Hire's niece, uh-huh. who was in her 90s, and she gave me the family Bible, which showed me that our tree was correct and that the garden hires were enslaved on the same plantations that the wanderer Africans were. And so they would have had a relationship. It would explain how the garden hires took one of the face jugs. And um, they actually, uh, I said, let's go to Edgefield. We have to, you know, we have to go follow this trail. And so the garden hire family, uh, Joan Jones and, and her husband and I, hopped on a plane and flew up flew down to Edgefield, and I started there, I started to really learn about the Africans of the Wanderer, and I was left with the question, well, what happened to them? Only Mm -hmm. seven were photographed. Where are the others? And that is where I I had asked to uh, photograph a slave cabin, and uh, a historian, Wayne O'Brien, had given me a, a few business cards of people that he thought had owned it. And Fred was one of them. So on my last day in Edgefield, I, I called Fred, and he, he reported to me, no, he, he didn't own any property right there, and he was in a different location. And when I asked him why the historian had his phone number, he informed me that he was the descendant of one of the survivors from the Wanderer. And that's when I knew who these people were and who their, what their stories were. And so for the next two years, I really just, scoured through everything from Ancestry.com to archives to newspapers and began to find the names and the stories of those people. And then with help from grants from Chipstone and Ancestry.com, I was able to go online and use those resources to find their living families and reconnect with them. Now, you mentioned you use uh, some genealogists. Uh, Who helped you? Well, in the very beginning, um, I, when I was still trying to put the garden hire uh, uh, um, family tree together, an Elaine Roundtree, um, who has some connections to the Edgefield uh, potteries through her husband, was really instrumental, and, and I can't thank her enough for helping me reconstruct those trees and um, for the garden hires. And then from there, really just following Ancestry.com, which is such a valuable resource, to connect people, follow them through the census, and then, you know, local historians like Wayne O'Brien and Fred um, were able to really help me connect with their families. Mm-hmm. Now, what was the time frame, again, for your research? What years? Uh, about three years. So you've been doing this for three years? Yes. And why did, and I, I see you have a website and you have other support for this project. Why? Tell us how this evolved into a project. Well, it just was remarkable. I mean, to have preserved stories of, of enslaved Africans that were, were brought to this country and to learn who they were, to have, you know, their, their stories of how they were captured, the Middle Passage, and how they've you know, contributed to, to our country and to, uh, you know, so much is so invaluable. And I just recognized that instantly. It was getting so much help. I mean, it was really a collaborative effort. I just reached out to every historian that I could. I reached out to African-American scholars and just 
tried to bring together as many minds as possible and, and really opened up some other avenues, such as an oral history project. So, um, you know, Fred had assisted us as well as connecting to many of the Edgefield, South Carolina residents who mm-hmm. really retain remarkable memories of African cultural survivals in their area. You know, Miss Georgia Scott, you know, told us in an interview that we have on our website about how she remembers as a young child um, and, and a young woman uh, people playing African-style Congo drums to communicate with each other from one side of the Savannah River to the other, you know, using coded messages to speak to one another mm-hmm. and, um, you know, talk of conjure and, and folklore. And it's just so important. So kind of being inspired by uh, Nora Bill Hurston and the WPA, um, you know, I've been interviewing with this, these people and trying to preserve their memories on film. Yes, and, oh, and film, too. Well, uh, Fred, you know, as far as oral history now, are you or have you uh, documented your oral history? I've, I write, so I, I've documented it in writing. I've been doing history for now 28 years, so... Mm-hmm. I've got quite a bit, and I'll go to folk homes in South Carolina, sit down, and listen to their story. Quite a few of the elderly folk. Uh, April's mentioned this Georgia Scott, who is 97, I believe, and mm-hmm. just an amazing woman for what she can remember. And that's sort of what I do. I enjoy getting out in the neighborhood. You know, you you come up in there. Hey, how's your you know how's your family doing? And we just talk and listen. So yes, and I and I go back and I'll jot that down. And most of mine is written at this point. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a book, or have either of you uh, written a book, or do you have plans of writing a book based upon the research that you've done on the wanderer and the descendants? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I am writing a book. I, I just received a contract from the University of Georgia Press, and my co-author, uh, Dr. Jason Young from the University of Buffalo, he's an African-American um, uh, historian, and we are going to be putting uh, the collection of these stories. I mean, it's really a remarkable tale, and it really dives into, you know, their lives and their experiences, which is just so few, you know, to, to have. And um, hopefully we will have that out by 2014, 2015. Oh, great. Because, uh, you know, Jason, we were hoping that he would have been able to uh, come on the show today, but we, you know, understood that he had a conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. is he the historian who's working with you? Um, he's one of the, the many people that are working with me. I, I decided to um, write the book with him just because he is just so knowledgeable in in so much. He wrote a book called uh, Rituals of Resistance that yes. I heavily relied on to really understand um, a lot of the cultural survivals and, and what was behind these space jokes. So he was the perfect person to ask to come alongside me and really help with the integrity of being able to tell this story fully. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you just tell us, I mean, so you're working on this project. It's been three years. What are some of your hopes for the future of this project? 
Well, some of my hopes are to continue to, you know, I think any researcher finds funding to be the most difficult part. So finding, you know, funding and, and grant uh, uh, money to help preserve the oral histories, which is just so invaluable before these people pass away and, and so many of their memories go with them. And, you know, it's, uh, to, to help continue to form with them, to help continue to, to reach out to other uh, wanderer uh, descendants and, um you know, to be able to tell their story, to keep that original promise that I made. And, and um, certainly the book will do that as we continue to lecture and, and so forth. So it's really, it's, it's, it's just a very um, rewarding project that I just want to see to its fullest. Right. And, you know, there's a question coming out of the chat, and I think, uh, Fred, yesterday I'll probably ask you this question, but have, have any of the descendants taken um, uh, DNA testing? I have not, but some have. Uh, April, do you know? Um, yes, I don't know how reliable the um, the testing is. Um, you know, I think Ward Lee's family had done some, and they were telling him he was from Cameroon. But I um, spoke with um, experts up at uh, Boston University. Um, John Thornton and his wife, and they were able, through his name and through their language samples, which we had from the anthropologists who had written down some of their language samples, you know, he, they spoke fluent Piconco and instantly recognized it. So they were able to tell us exactly that these particular Africans in Edgefield were from uh, the, the Valley of Nadimba, um, if I remember correctly. And so um, I think as research continues, it'll provide hopefully a valuable tool for them to, for others that don't know where they were from, to reconnect. Right. Well, another question is, are there any, to your knowledge, direct line gender descendants, like son to father, father to father? Um, you know, you mean paternal? Yes. Yes, yes. Um, Ward Lee's family um, goes back to, um, um, has been passed down, and uh, I think through the paternal line. So, yes, I do believe there, there are some there which would help with genetics. Mm -hmm. As far as the descendants are concerned, were, I mean, not descendants, but those who were on the ship, any females? Yes, yes, there were... Um, you know, one of the youngest was uh, Lucy Lanham. She was a young girl when she was captured. And there were many females. There was uh, a woman that I found from um, Alabama, and her name was Old Bulgy. And she was captured, and she remembers um, the sea and the vastness of it. And she had given a interview with a local reporter, which I found. And I was able to connect with her descendant, who lives in Pennsylvania, who actually mm -hmm. carries her name, Old Bulgy. And, um, wow. yes, there were many females. There was actually even one child that was born during the Middle Passage. Interesting, really interesting. And did that, I mean, the child survived? Yes, can you imagine? Can I yes. Just, can it, the barbaric nature of, of being um, put in a slave ship, let alone being a woman giving birth. So she did survive, and... Um, you know, those those records exist. Well, that is so interesting. Well, do you have, and I'll, I'll ask any of the 
uh, oh, the chatters would like to know how, uh, I think it was Ambuji, how does she spell her name? Um, well, it, it, B-U-L-G-E-E. B-U-L-G-E-E, Bulgy. Oh, Bulgy. Oh, Bulgy, okay. Oh, yeah. Bulgy, okay. Okay, and then uh, was the child identified later in life? Um, well, she was not the one who had um, the child on board, if I remember, and I don't have my notes in front of me. Um, there was, um, um, from the Sea Islands in uh, it was either Floyd's Neck or St. Actually, I think it was St. Simon's. It was um, a man named Slaughter and his wife. Oh, goodness, I can't remember off the top of my head. But she was the one who had a baby on mm-hmm. the ship. Mm-hmm. That, and they were actually, parts of their story are actually uh, recorded in the uh, WPA records. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, is it... Um I mean, is it recorded as the the wanderership survivors? I mean, how can we find that if we want to look at it? Well, you have to know their names. The only reason I was able oh, to find out okay. who they were is by mm-hmm. finding their names through their families. And then I went back to the WPAs, and you see, like, for example, um, there was a witch doctor named um, Mazinga who was mm-hmm. – um, oh, Fred, can you think of it off the top of your head? I can't think of Mazinga's – American name. Um, no. Um, I can't. Tom Floyd? I'll have to think of it. I apologize. But anyway, he was recorded um, in the WPAs and talks about, um, you know, some of his um some of his memories and other people talk oh yes I remember the Africans that came over on that ship from Charlie Lamar so when you read through it you really pay attention to those little clues it tells you who those people are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now I know that you have a website could you just share with people your website and tell them what can be found on your website about the Wanderer and the project Sure, sure. Um, the uh, website is thewandererproject.com, and all of my contact information is there, my phone number, my email. And there, you know, I really encourage people to go there. And, and you know, um, there we have um, interviews from the Schomburg Center. We were able to, um, with a grant from Ancestry.com and Chipstone, bring together several descendant families of the Wanderer. And so for the first time in 150 years, these um, descendants will be able to come back together. Um, And we interviewed them, and they tell a lot about how this new knowledge means to them. And um, it's very powerful. And then on other pages, um, we have interviews with Fred and other historians and, you know, Miss Georgia Scott, who remember many African survivals. So um, it's it's a fun website. So I, I would love for people to come visit. Oh, yes. And how often do you, uh, the people come together to to share? Or was this a one-time yeah. only? <laughs> This was this was a one time only. I, I've gone to some of their family reunions to just you know share with their family some of the things that we've learned. But um, you know my hope is that we can. Um, we're working with Jekyll Island, which is um, where the slave ship landed, and I've been working with them pretty closely to um, put together um, 
a, a, a new interpretation of the memorial now that we know so much more and really bring together as many families as we can to really do a true reunion, which would be great. Yes, that would be, and it would be really nice to even know more about the memorial. Now, uh, didn't you have a, a, a role to play, or at least you communicated with the folks at History Detectives who did a little research with you on this, uh, the face jug? Yes. Originally, I had uh, called in History Detectives on PBS to help me find how my face jug got to Philadelphia. And, you know, they had um, helped me to learn about an uh, identical jug to mine, which is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I think they're going to actually put it on display shortly, um, the two mm-hmm. jugs together, my jug and its almost identical twin. And that was kind of the big reveal, but it left me with questions of how it got to Philadelphia. So it was shortly thereafter that the trail began to pick up and lead me to the Wanderer. Oh, so that's how you got hooked on the Wanderer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wonderful. Well, I have really uh, enjoyed hearing about the story, the Wanderer, and and Fred, about your descendant. And do you all have any parting words to share with us about where you hope to go with this project and, and anything else because you really uh, engaged in some genealogical research and storytelling that we certainly would love to see others do, especially if they find artifacts in the home and want to really explore where they came from. I'd like Fred, to, why don't you begin? I'd like to encourage the older generation to pass the stories on make the copies of photos with names on the back, and just tell the younger folk the story. Get it out there. Let them share it with the grands and the great-grands. So that's what I think I would pass on. Okay. And April? Well, uh, you know, I really believe the, the lives of so many have been, you know, lost behind this brick wall of slavery. So it's so important to look at this particular group that I really feel speak for so many that that don't have a voice. And they are able to tell about how they were captured, their experience during enslavement, and how they were empowered um, after freedom to contribute to the fabric of America. And it's really a remarkable story. Civil rights leaders, um, uh, you know, servicemen and women, uh, you know, the first African-American doublement twins, the first African-American New York uh, uh, judicial uh, woman. So, you know, it's really a fantastic story of perseverance. So that's my ultimate goal to share with people. Right, and and it's certainly a goal that we certainly would love everyone to strive towards, finding that story and telling that story. And and this is just an initiative that everyone needs to do. You can't stop with just finding the artifact, but you need to tell the story that goes with the artifact. So thank you so much for, for coming on today. And everyone, you know, we're getting close to December, and I'm just really excited because I have a wonderful December lineup. So let me just share with you all what will be going on. Uh, next Thursday, December the 5th, we will have genealogist Sharon Gillums. And Sharon is going to discuss the Freedman 
Bureau Records. Now, this is a exciting record group. Uh, 105, we had Selmer, uh, who shared with us the information from Virginia, and so we will have Sharon Gillum speaking about the records that she found in Louisiana, and that's December the 5th. The following uh, uh, week, we will have family historian Dr. Elaine Parker Adams, and she's going to share a moving story about the research that she conducted on her grand, great-grandfather in a book, the Reverend Peter W. Clark, Sweet Preacher and Steadfast Reformer in the Methodist Church. So this should be a very interesting uh, story for us to hear about. And then the following week, we will have uh, Michael Williams. Michael Williams is a motivational uh, keynote speaker. He's spoken a lot, and he's an award-winning novelist. And he's going to speak on the topic of uh, breaking barriers, the impossible reach made possible. And he will speak to adoptees and how he has gone through his Uh, discovery of rediscovering the kinship village, and that's what he will be speaking of. So you'll have opportunity to hear the wonderful story shared by Michael Williams. And then on December the 19th, we will have genealogist Sarah Cato. And Sarah will come on to discuss the remembrance and recognition of the 56th USCT project uh, by the St. Louis African American History and Genealogy Society, and she's going to share with us the memorial and everything that they did to have these uh, soldiers recognized uh, from the USCT. So we just have an exciting lineup for you in the month of December. So I want to once again thank April Hines and Reverend Fred Morton for joining me today. And I just want to just say, you know, remember, your ancestors left footprints. Even if it's an artifact, it's an oral history, it's something that we need to take into consideration. And so you should follow all of the clues that are presented to you through oral history, as I've mentioned, family records, and research at the research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, please remember to to like the Facebook pages of Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and beyond. Information is being put on these Facebook pages all the time so that you can know what's going on in African-American genealogy. Also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton-Raji on Friday mornings and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving, Fred and April. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.